There's a few quotes that I wanted to open with from the text, and uh, the first one is this, and this really applies to all of the disciplines, not just the discipline of submission. Um, and, and, and Richard Foster says this on a page 110. He says, The purpose of the disciplines is freedom. Our aim is the freedom, not the discipline. The moment we make the discipline our central focus, we turn it into law and lose the corresponding freedom. What is he saying? He's saying that all the disciplines that we're going through in this series are not ends in and of themselves. They're to bring about a certain goal or result. And that result is greater freedom in Christ. We're not doing these disciplines. We're not embarking on a a disciplined life before God just so that we could check off the box on our spiritual chore chart. We're doing it because God desires that we would be set free. We would be set free because of the disciplines that he is teaching us and he is encouraging us to follow in our lives. That is the end goal. And any time that we make it just about the disciplines themselves, we lose the heart of what's really behind it. We really lose the true motivation of the discipline. So each discipline has a corresponding uh, freedom. And you may ask, uh, and, and Richard Foster also asked this question, well, what, what freedom corresponds to submission? What in particular applies to the message today? What freedom is our actual goal? Well, it is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. These are strong words from Richard Foster, but I believe they really convey how the severity of, 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 of what this is, okay? The terrible burden of having to get our own way. Let me give you maybe a, a, a little bit of a lighthearted example. Um, you know, when I, when I first um, was hanging out with friends and we, we'd go out somewhere and we were deciding where we were going to go. Or at the time when I was courting Cecilia and um, we, we'd be uh, heading out and we'd ask the question, you know, uh, where do you want to go to eat? Or, or what movie do you want to see? And uh, we had difficulty deciding. We had difficulty coming up with where we're going to go because neither of us wanted to make the decision. And uh, I say that because if I got to choose the restaurant or choose the movie, and I remember this very distinctly, it would be me who chose the movie, and we'd go see the movie, and we'd come out, and I would be so worried that she didn't like it. Or the food wasn't up to, the, up to her liking or uh, the movie just didn't turn out. And I remember the feeling of leaving the theater or leaving the restaurant and being like, oh, this is, this is my fault. It's my fault that it didn't turn out. It's my fault that the movie was bad. It's my fault that the, the, the food was, was bad because I'm the one who got to make the choice. I'm the one who was leading I'm the one who made the decision. Has anybody been in that situation before? Now, it, this extends beyond just a dating relationship. This extends to a group. I remember being in groups and, and you know, um, one of the ways that, that the Lord has gifted me just by grace is that uh, he's just, you know, when there's an absence of leadership, I, I, I tend in group dynamics to, to fill that role. So if people aren't going in a certain direction, I kind of just step up and say, we're doing this. Let me tell you, that's a dangerous place to be because when it doesn't pan out, it falls on you. 
And I remember feeling like I shouldn't have done that uh, a, a few times. Uh, because I remember feeling that, that sense of responsibility. And so what we do when we submit to the Lord is the f- corresponding freedom is ours. And that is the relief from the terrible burden of always needing to have our own way. Always needing to have our own way. When we choose our way ahead of God's way, it comes with that responsibility of bearing the burden of the result. And that can be to our downfall. Let's take a look again at our passage this morning. It's just uh, really four verses in James chapter 1. I'd like to read it for you again. Um, uh, Joshua read from the NIV. I'll be reading from the ESV just to give it a, a little bit of a different nuance. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts He will be blessed in his doing. Amen? That first verse, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know what the problem with deception is? It's deceiving. And we can avoid deception by submission. We avoid deception by doing Let me tell you that the task of coming to church week after week and to be blessed is not simply about hearing God's word. And I'm here to warn you this morning that if we hear God's word and fail to do it, we run the risk of deception. Because hearing God's word and not doing it, just hearing it, helps us to to maybe believe that we're walking in God's will, that we're doing all that we should be doing. Let me tell you that hearing is only half the battle, but doing is where the blessing lies. There's something that James wants to highlight for us here. And he says, listen, if we only hear and we fail to do, we're, we're being deceived because that is not the end. The end is not to hear a nice message. The end is not to, after we say amen, all together, to stand up and say, hey, well, that was a nice message, and move on with our lives as if it's just information. That is not the goal of any message. That is not the goal of of church. The goal is that we would do what we hear. Remember in the Great Commission, Jesus said, teach them to do. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. He didn't say, oh, just teach them what I've said. No. He said, teach them to do. That's the difference. It's in the doing. And if we want to avoid deception, we need to ensure that we are being faithful to do what we hear. This is a sobering book of the Bible, I know. And we're just on that first verse. Let's look a little bit further. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks 
at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Here James is saying the same thing. He's saying, how is it then? If you're telling me when you look in the mirror and you see something that you bring correction right away, how is it then that week after week and day after day we open up the Word of God? The mirror of His very Word that we hold up before our very souls. We hold it up to ourselves and to our lives and to our hearts and we read what's there and we see what God is speaking to. How can we walk away from that Word unchanged? James is saying it's foolish. It's nonsense. How can we do that? If we're so conscious and aware of even our physical appearances and how we would conduct ourselves in a natural mirror, how much more are we to have that same sense of urgency, that same determination to bring correction to our lives when we hold up God's mirror, the Word of God? Amen? That would just be crazy. That would just be foolish. The next verse is this, verse 25. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, it's the doing that causes us to remember. You see, it says being no hearer who forgets? You see, the problem with only hearing, the problem with it is that we will forget. How many times um, have you maybe heard something and forgotten about it? In other words, I know some people, they say this, they say, hold on, I need to write it down if I'm going to remember it. I know you're telling me, whatever it is you're telling me, some task you need me to take care of or something you're mentioning to me, but if I don't write it down, I'm going to lose it. Right? Some of you take notes during the messages because you know that it helps you to retain more. If we hear only, we have a tendency to forget. But the secret to remembering, I'm going to give it to you right now, the secret to it, to retaining it, is doing. If you really want to have something down, do it. And you know, um, this, this isn't just the Bible talking, and that would be enough. Thousands of years ago, James understood this principle. But even in our modern day, uh, researchers and people involved in education, teachers, are, 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 are seeing this reality. There's this guy, his name was Edgar Dale. And uh, many of you who are teachers or have done education, you may have seen this uh, sort of pyramid here, or it's not a pyramid, it's a triangle, but he calls it the cone of experience. Some people call it the cone of learning. And uh, I I just want a disclaimer that this thing is not based on uh, research or anything like that. It was just this guy, Dale, he was involved in education, developing educational practices, and he didn't actually have the percentages that you see on, uh, on the side. But someone else kind of developed it, and, uh, and we'll, take it, we'll take it for what it is. But as you can see at the top, when you read something, they, what they say is that you, you retain 10% of that. 20% of what you hear, 30% of what they see if it's videos, 50% uh, of what they see and hear, 70% of what they say and write, and 90% 
of what they do. Even the education systems of this world have realized what James spoke of many years ago, is that if we only hear it, we have a tendency not to retain it. But if we do what's in the Word of God, we got it down. That's how we retain it. So now they're developing Sunday school program. They're developing education systems where kids can actually do those things. They don't just sit and listen to a lesson. But they actually get involved in what they're learning. And this is, they're seeing the fruits of that. They're seeing how, they, how much they retain it. So doing is what will cause you to retain something. It's what will cause you to remember And again, there is a blessing for doing, but not for hearing only. How many of you want to be blessed? We are blessed when we get to hear the Word of God. Amen. We are blessed when we get to be here and be part of the message and and hear what, what God is speaking to His church. The blessing, the intention of Scripture comes from the doing, not just the hearing. An amazing passage, it says, those who look intently into the perfect law, the law that brings liberty, the law of freedom. Jesus fulfilled the law and showed that the missing element was always the heart. It was always the heart. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. And I know this may be a a point where we, as Christians, we have a tendency to struggle because we're always wondering, are we, what's the role of, of the Old Testament law in our hearts, in our lives? What's the role of God's law? Do we have to obey some of it, all of it? What is it? Jesus made it very clear that he didn't come to abolish the law, but in him the law was fulfilled. That's good news, folks. We don't have to make sacrifices of animals anymore. Because God's sacrificial lamb was sacrificed for you and me once and for all. In Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, he took the law and didn't abolish it. But instead, he had in himself the fulfillment of the law. What do I mean by that? He said, you've heard it said, thou shall not murder. Right? But I say to you, If you hate your brother, you're guilty of it. What is he saying? He's saying that it's not just the outward law that is enough on its own. It's the heart behind the law. Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks on someone with lust has already committed adultery in their heart. He isn't... uh, abolishing the law, instead he's establishing the law. The laws in and of themselves, apart from the heart, only could bring death. That's what Romans says. If we have the form, but we lack the heart, we're missing the true motivation behind what God would have for us. Jesus fulfilled the law, and he was a sacrifice for us For what reason? So that we would be forgiven. But for for what additional reason? So that He could give us the gift of His Holy Spirit. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you and in work in me that causes us to be able to fulfill the law of God. Jesus said you need to have the law, but you also need to have the Spirit. You need the message of the Gospel. The Gospel is that Jesus gave His life 
for us so that His life could be in us. The Spirit of God is alive and at work in you, brothers and sisters. The Spirit of God is at work in you today. You know why? It says so in the Word of God. It says this, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. And if you would say today that Jesus is Lord, it's the Holy Spirit that's working in you. It's the Holy Spirit that is at work in your heart and in your life. And we need both. I remember as a young Christian, picking up the Word of God. And I've mentioned this to you before, that I, I went back and I started to read the Old Testament. And I realized just how much I wasn't able to do this stuff. Has that been your experience? Have you ever read the Word of God and say, God, I know this is your Word, but I just fall short. No matter what I would do, as I would read and read and read, I would just come under more and more condemnation because I realized that the more and more I read about God's standard, the more I, I saw how far I was falling short. How far I was falling. How much of a gap there was. Until I came to the good news. that said Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of the law. Not part of it, but all of it for you, for me, on our behalf. Jesus is to be praised this morning because He submitted Himself under the law, to, to be under the law so that we who were under the law could be free. And now that we're in Him, we submit to Him. This is what submission is all about. <coughs> Excuse me. What does it mean to be submitted to God? You see, the heart of submission is you say, well, we say, if Jesus took the law of adultery and the law of murder and he took it to another level, well, what does it have to do with submission? It's not just about outwardly submitting to each other, but what does Foster say? He says, in the matter of submission, the same is true. The real issue here is the spirit of consideration and respect we have for each other. It's not enough that we would just submit to each other. The heart of God is that the dreams of our family and friends and members of the body would be our dreams, that we would support them, that we would share their burdens, that we would submit to one another in love, that we would protect the bond of unity, that we would be united together in the bond of love. This is what God desires for us. It's not about, well, he always gets her own way or she always has her way or I'm the one always submitting. We've missed it. If we're there, we've missed it. That God would give us a heart of submission to obey His Word, to submit first and foremost to Him, to His Word, to the plan He has for our lives. And by extension, we submit to each other as members of that body. Amen? This extends a lot further, folks, actually. God says to submit to all earthly authorities. But we start with the household of God. We start by submitting to each other. That God would develop in us that heart. Listen, it's only by the power of the Spirit that we're able to do those things we mentioned before. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that we're able to develop in the real issue, which is the spirit of consideration and respect that we have for each other. If you sincerely respect and consider each other this morning, it's because the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart and life. The true submission is about self-denial. 
It says this in, in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, that's Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of what Jesus desires for us, that we would be followers of him. But that we would follow him and, and take up our cross and obey him. It says in, in the next few verses in Mark chapter 8 that if anyone would go after their life, they'll lose it. But if anyone for my sake would deny themselves, in that they will find their life. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that your very identity, who you are, will never make sense until you get this down. Our identity as Christians is only because we have submitted to God's will and God's purpose for our lives. Anytime we deviate from submitting to God's word, anytime we deviate from the discipline of submission, we are not in keeping with the identity of who Christ has called us to be as his children. The ESV notes this. Following the first major prediction of his death and resurrection, Jesus instructs in discipleship all those who would come after me. The goal of self-denial and taking up one's cross is not pathological self-abasement or a martyr complex but being free to follow the Messiah. Self-denial means letting go of self-determination and replacing it with obedience to and dependence on the Messiah. You see what he's saying here? When we talk about self-denial, everyone tends to cringe. We think, oh no, you're talking about that I just have to deny myself and I, I, have, to, I have to become a martyr. Or It's this, this, this idea of self-abasement and the scholars who wrote the notes in this particular study Bible say that's not, that's not what it is at all. Self-denial is what causes us to be free to follow God. Submission is what validates the blessing. We want our lives to be blessed, amen? We want our lives, our very lives to be blessed in, in our relationships, in our family, in our health, in our finances. But all of those things need to be submitted to God. I was uh, speaking with um, uh, a, a, a lady who I'm, I'm, I'm giving some counsel to recently. And she's been looking for a job. And she was in the upper echelon of jobs making six-figure salary. And God called her to uh, leave that job and to begin writing a book and uh, start developing ministry and and doing different things, but now she's at a place where she's back on the job market, and she's been, uh, there's been kind of a long time and struggle to, to find the right job because she doesn't want to go back into the things that she um, was in before in terms of technology and whatnot, but she needs to submit to God. We've been praying over a number of weeks, and uh, she recently received an offer that's well into the six figures, I think it's a $140,000 a year job. And she said to me on the phone yesterday, she said, uh, you know what, uh, Pastor Jordan? Actually, it doesn't mean anything to me. The status, the money, the, 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 you know, the reputation, the contacts, all, all the things that come with a job like that, 
it doesn't have a hold on me anymore. I said, Amen. That's fantastic. I said, how is it so typical of God that we pray for blessings? We pray for these amazing blessings in our lives, but God is going to wait to give them to us until it doesn't have a hold on us. And I'd always say, God, God, why do you only give it to me when I don't want it anymore? Have you been there? It's because God wants to bless you. But those blessings aren't for you only. They're to be passed on. And the blessings that God gives us, He doesn't, he doesn't want to bless us if it's ultimately going to hurt us. The great thing about God is He never forces His blessing on us. I have another story to tell you somewhat I'm a little bit ashamed about. When I was a younger Christian, I was believing God for um, a vehicle. And it was, uh, I didn't have a vehicle, but I was living in a town where uh, there was only buses like every two hours. Uh, you missed a bus, you were like four hours out of, out of your way. You, you, you wouldn't be able to do it. Okay? That's the type of town it was. And oftentimes, if the connecting buses, if you missed the connection because the first bus was late, uh, you were, you were out, out to lunch, basically. And so I was praying and believing God for a vehicle. And I remember praying so intently about it, and I couldn't understand um, why I just felt like there was a barrier in prayer. Like I was praying, and I just had this tangible sense that I was just hitting a ceiling. I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, even um, Deuteronomy talks about it, and I think uh, also Job talks about it. Talks about the iron ceiling made of copper or bronze, something like that. And I didn't know what it was at the time because um, I was still a, a newer Christian and new to prayer, and I was praying and believing God for this. And I was like, God, you said in your word, if we pray and believe. And I was, I was, I was aggressively holding God to it. And I, I just got this sense in my heart. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I, I did get the sense that if I could put into words to you, would be something like this. Jordan, okay. Forcing my hand, okay. It's not my will be done. It's your will be done. And I remember leaving that prayer and, and, and just having an awkward feeling. So I come to church on Sunday. It was the next day, the very next day. And the service comes to a close. And I'm up at the front at the altar. And this lady comes up to me. She says, hi, are you Jordan? I said, yes. She says, I have a car for you. I said, praise be to God. Hallelujah. You know, here's my husband's information. Give him a call this week and you can come by and pick it up. So I went by, uh, made arrangements, went to check it out. And the car just needed a little bit of work. Okay, it turned out the car needed a lot of work. <laughs> the car was free. But in the first month and a half, not only did I have insurance payments up the wazoo because I was young, insurance was up about $300 a month, which was unsustainable. Thank you, whoever that insurance company was. I know who they are. I won't, I won't mention it. Um, but I had $3,000 of repairs to do. I couldn't afford it. it. It basically caused so many problems, and I had to run around with this car. It was an absolute nightmare for the next six months dealing with the issues that I had. I had so many problems. But hey, I could get around. Why am I saying that? I think the Lord allowed me to learn a lesson that when we force His hand, when we fail to submit, it's not because God, doesn't want, God wants to hold back the blessing or that He doesn't want to bless us. It's that He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the end result. 
And we need to be able to say, God, not my will be done. Surely you can do it, Lord. Surely you can take this cup from me. Surely you can do it, but I am choosing, Lord, to submit to your will and to your way because I know you have my blessings in mind and you know what's best for me. It was a hard lesson I had to learn. It was a hard lesson I had to learn. But God wants to validate the blessings in our lives as we submit to Him. I can't tell you how many uh, pastors I know that have been in unjust situations in churches that have submitted to God, let their reputation fall, they haven't caused a fight, they left peaceably and agreeably, and God blessed them to even greater ministry. Conversely, I know pastors who have resisted God's will, who haven't submitted to God's authority and to His way and to His plan, and it, as it turns out, they're not in ministry for very longer. And if they are, it's never the same as it was. It's not the hearers of the word that are blessed, but the doers of the word. There may be some things today that you need to lay down before God. There may be some things this morning that you would say, Lord, yes, I need to submit this before you, God. Let me tell you, God will give it back to you. He'll give it back to you with his blessing because you've surrendered it to him. You know, it's whether it's finances, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whatever it is, when we give it to God, we can never outgive Him. He always has a way of getting things back to us. Every single thing. I had worked on a, on a, on a youth lounge over at the other church, and we had just finished it, and we had this huge display. Within the first few months right here, we had one back here, here at Snowden. And there's several things like that. They might seem like small things if we just were to enumerate them today. I won't. But to me, it was clear God was making a point that He is able to bless me. He is able to set a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He is able to bless you despite the situations, despite the economy, despite what's happening with the jobs, despite what's happening in politics. God is able to turn things around. God is able to restore because his arm isn't short today. God is able, church. It's not about self-denial. It's about setting us up to be free to follow him. Psalm 49 really encapsulates this. Verses 6 to 8. Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. What is he saying? He's saying that the crux of the gospel is about letting God be God rather than trusting in ourselves, our abilities, and our possessions. It would be foolish to trust in those things. Submit to those things. We're better off submitting to God. The book quotes George Matheson, and this is a hymn that he wrote called Make Me a Captive, Lord. I'm not sure when it was written, but it says this, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. A couple verses that I want to close with and then there's a song at the end. And this one is really important. 
The Lord truly instructed me this week to change the verses that we're looking at today and to bring attention to, to, to this. I said, Lord, what verse do you want me to, 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 to go after? And he kept telling me about the law of liberty. The law of liberty. And here it is here. 2 Corinthians three seventeen to 18, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see, the law, apart from the Spirit of God, is death, Romans says. But Jesus gave his life so that the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost would be poured out to the church, that those who trust in, in God would be filled with the Spirit of God, would be born again by the Spirit of God, so that in us we could be set free from the law of sin and death and made alive by the Spirit of Christ. Because where the Spirit is, there is freedom. And we all, remember it says, looked intently into the perfect law that brings freedom. Look intently. And we all, with unveiled face, look intently. Behold, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The law is made perfect. is made complete by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 5 and 6 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is is life and peace. Submitting to God is what truly brings freedom. Submitting to God is what validates God's blessing in our lives.